on this episode of the Jason Wright Show. Flying V jump. Um, and one day I was I was at my house with hanging out with my friend Stephen Perkins, who would later become the drummer of Jane's Addiction. Yeah. And my sister walks in the room and she passes me a 45. And for those that don't know, a 45 is single. Not a gun and not a not a bottle of malt liquor, but something yeah. you actually play music on. Yeah. So she said, listen to this. So we put it on our record player and um, the song was Stick to Your Guns by Motley Crue. And we were like, whoa, what is this? And we just were just enchanted by this music, the solo, the singing, everything about it was amazing. Doug Pig, do I have you now? You have me. I hear you loud and clear, brother. You sound amazing. Okay. That's been... Well, all right. So first of all, finally, welcome to the Jason Wright Show, man. My my one of my new best buddies, Doug Pick. You know, this is and we were just talking about how the podcast, one of the coolest aspects of it has been the fact that you put yourself out there. And through the law of attraction, you just meet cool people. And then the next thing you know, they become some of your your closest friends. So I'm glad to actually have you on the show now, man. Thank you. I mean, it's it's such a treat uh, to be with you. It's been so much fun just to get to know you over these last few weeks. And it was one of those like first dates. Yeah. You're out, you have a first date and you're like, man, this guy is cool. So <laughs> it was, it was a lot of fun to, well, I appreciate it. And you know, I tell, I think I told you like early on, I tell nearly every person that comes on the show, I'm like, I'm just not a transactional guy. I don't know how to do that. I'm very relational. And like, especially to me, when you come on to the Jason Wright show, I don't care who you are for meeting for the first time or the 20th time. It's like, you're in my home. You are truly a guest. And I, and so it's so fun. And you know, this is kind of cool too, in that you are a badass entrepreneur. You've done some cool things. You're now kind of going through, you're the second guy actually that I've talked to in the last two weeks that has, is like me kind of in that, you know, that midpoint of life where you've done some really cool things. And instead of going through the proverbial midlife crisis, you're going through like a midlife launch. You know, it's like, you've got all these great experiences and you want to leverage them to do some really cool things. And so that's kind of what brought us together. And it's really a lot of fun, man. And so, dude, I and, and for the audience, I just, today, you're just going to get to hear two guys riff. We love music. We, as a matter <laughs> of fact, we were just talking about uh, Smashing Pumpkins. So you mentioned Smashing yeah. Pumpkins, Billy Corgan, who is just a badass, just an incredibly talented guy. You got to go see them with Jane's Addiction, which I know you've got a history with Jane's Addiction, which is so cool. So my... First, was Cherub Rock there? Was that Smashing Pumpkins' very first album? Was that on their first album? You know, I, I'm not um, so familiar with their catalog. Yeah. Um, I just, I've, you know, on the on the tertiary, I've followed them and, you know, their singles and just know their music from there. So, if and you were talking about how awesome Billy was, he is like a musical, like, virtuoso. I mean, he's like one of those guys, mm-hmm. kind of like... A lot of people don't know this. C.C. DeVille, who yeah. was lead guitarist for Poison, wasn't he like Juilliard trained or something like that? I know he's like a classical guitarist trained and turned rock star. And that's kind of how Billy Corgan is, I think, is he mm-hmm. like was a student of music. 
and yet just goes out and crushes it as a rock star. I freaking love the Smashing Pumpkins. And one of the things that's cool, all the 90s music right now is, I feel like, because my girls tell me, like they said that, my, like Rylan, who just graduated from the University of Alabama, she said, she said, Dad, you'll be so happy. One of the major frat songs that you'll hear at every frat party at some point is going to be Wonderwall. And I'm a, <laughs> I'm a diehard Oasis guy. I just think nine, the 90s were like, you know, we were coming out of the late 80s of all the grunge stuff, which introduced us to Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and and all those great Mother Love Bone, all those cool Soundgarden. God, the list goes on and on. And um, then it just, you know, good rock and roll. And, you know, and then you, my friend, why don't you share your experience with a little band known as Motley Crue? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, going back to the early 80s, I was a huge Van Halen fan. There's mm -hmm. nothing better than an Eddie Van Halen solo and a David Lee Roth flying V jump. Um, and one day I was, I was at my house with hanging out with my friend, Stephen Perkins, who would later become the drummer of Jane's Addiction. Yeah. And my sister walks in the room and she passes me a 45. And for those that don't know, a 45 is a single. <laughs> not a gun and not a not a bottle of malt liquor, but something yeah. you actually play music on. Yeah. So she said, listen to this. So we put it on our record player. And um, the song was Stick to Your Guns by Motley Crue. And we were like, whoa, what is this? And we just were just enchanted by this music, the solo the singing, everything about it was amazing. And, and as it turns out, um, she said, yeah, this band Motley Crue is playing at a club on Christmas. And this was December, 1981. So Steve and I said, well, we got to go check them out. So Christmas day, 1981, we went to a place called the country club in Reseda and Motley Crue took the stage. There was probably 150 people in the audience and i'll never forget vince neal coming out wearing a santa claus hat and he had this big satchel of too fast for love albums that he threw out into the crowd and that was that was their first independent record and um the show was just incredible uh you know it's just a lot of energy excitement and uh, then we ended up seeing them on new year's eve December 31st, 1981, David Lee Roth introduced them. And then I got the idea that um, I would take pictures of the band when I was 13. And this, I was 13 for my, uh, for my birthday present. I, I got a um, 35 millimeter camera and it was just a very basic, it was what's called the uh, a, a Pentax K1000. It was like $120 at the time. Wow. And and also at that time, photography in clubs, concerts, et cetera, wasn't allowed like it is today where everybody has a phone and they're taking videos and pictures. Right. Um, bringing a camera into a show of any kind was a big no-no. So I figured out a way to sneak in my camera. And the first show that I photographed of Motley Crue was at the Roxy on Sunset Boulevard. And I just started taking pictures of the band around town. And as it turns out, there's a song on Too Fast for Love, which is called Starry Eyes, which Nikki wrote about a girl he was dating named Anita. And Anita was friends with my sister. 
So somehow or another, uh, <laughs> so much my, serendipity going on, man. Yeah, it was awesome. it was nuts. Uh, and and um, so um, somehow or another, my pictures made it into Nikki Six's hands. And one day I was at home, and I, the, the phone rings, and uh, the caller says, "Hi, I'm looking for Doug. Is he available?" And I said, "This is Doug." And the caller says, "This is Nikki Six from Motley Crue." And I go, what? <laughs> and um, that was really uh, the beginning because he said, hey, I hear you're taking some cool pictures of my band. I'd love to come over and check them out. So I'm 13. Yeah, I'm just a little kid. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So the next thing I know, in about a half an hour, a black 914 Porsche pulls up to the front of my home. Nikki Six gets out. And his girlfriend at the time was Lita Ford. And they come into my home. Nikki sits down at my little high school desk and he just starts checking out my pictures. He's like, wow, these are really good. And I was like, thanks. And he said, I'll make you a deal. He said, if you uh, will come to our shows and take pictures, I will get you photographer's passes. And all I ask is the ability to see the pictures afterwards. And I was like, deal, done. Let's go. And from there, we developed um, a friendship. And it was really cool because I had the chance to go backstage to meet Tommy and Vince and Mick. And I knew their manager, Alan Kaufman, at the time. And for those of you that haven't read it, The Dirt um, by Neil, Krauss, Neil Strauss sorry, is uh, one awesome, fun read and, and an accurate read about the early years of the crew. And so um, he and I just would talk every once in a while. I had fun calling him one time and I said, Hey, Nikki, what are you doing? He goes, Oh, I'm writing this new song. We're going to play at the next show. I go, what's it called? And he goes, shout at the devil. I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, so that was the beginning of our relationship and, and we can talk about it, Jason, but there's this thread of Nikki six and Motley crew that would then proceed for the next 40 years. Yeah. So even to this day, Motley Crue still has uh, an impact on my life. And uh, there's a thread of Nikki Six throughout it. Yeah. So I do want to talk about that. And because cause I know that's a natural segue into kind of how we met. I mean, you end up developing a product, an unlikely product. I mean, I doubt anyone ever just sits up and goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out there and crush the freaking earplug market. You know, <laughs> you know, you know where I'm going to make my, my bank is going to be earplugs, baby, you know, and, which I think is one of the coolest parts of, of your story. And that's, those are the, the stories I love to bring up on the Jason Wright show. I love the entrepreneurs hero's journey. So yeah, man, why don't you talk? And, and also real quick, one of the things that's yeah. so cool about your story is a lot of people think like we've talked about my daughter that wants to be a writer. And I remember whenever when she was first starting at the university of Colorado and she said she wanted to do creative writing. And a lot of people think, well, I've got to be a writer. I must have to write a book. And I was like, and then, or if you even want to be a commercial writer, you know, a copywriter, I'm like, you know, she would write things for the school paper and she's got a, she's writing for a magazine. And I said, well, now look, here's the deal. If you'll go to places like the Chamber of Commerce and other trade associations, they're dying for content. Go write their content. She's like, oh, I never thought about that. Just because you want to write a book doesn't mean you have to start writing books. Just because you want to be in the music industry doesn't mean you have to be Nikki Six crushing it, you know, on the guitar or, you know, 
Tommy Lee on the on the skins, you can actually find an, other ways to be a part of the industry. And mm -hmm. you did that. Am I right? Yes. Yes. I, and that's a really great point. Um, so what Nikki influenced about my life is my first career direction. And, you know, I, I mentioned Stephen Perkins early on. Stephen started playing drums, I'm guessing when he was nine or so, and I played bass. And I would bring my bass and my amp over to his home, and I would try and play along with him, but I just wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of it just was he and I just hanging out and me watching him play drums. Um, so the thing about the relationship with Nikki was I loved music, I loved concerts, and I also loved business. And so um, what I then reasoned was that, hey, you know what? I should go into the music business. So I became laser focused on um, working that path. And literally that started when I was 14 years old. So what I would do is contact record companies and I would get them to send me press kits about all the latest releases. I would read any industry magazine that I possibly could about record company executives, entrepreneurs, et cetera. And again, this is going back to the mid to late 80s when there was no internet, there really wasn't much information out there. And um, long story short is I went through USC's entrepreneur program and part of the process to graduate was you had to write a business plan on your own company, whatever it was. It, it was just about the process to determine is your idea viable? Mm -hmm. And so my thing was, I wanted to write uh, a business plan about my own record company. The only challenge was, again, there was no information available. There was a book by a guy named Don Passman, who was a, uh, who was a music business attorney. Um, however, that was just one data point. And in order to create a business plan, I needed to understand royalties, publishing, how deals were done. So what I did was I wrote letters to about 50 local record company executives. And um, every single one of those letters, or I should say 49 of the 50, were ultimately sent to the human resources department. So I got back about 49 letters from human resources that said the following. Thank you so much for your submission. We really appreciate you writing to us we'll keep your resume on file should any opportunities pop up and i was like what that that wasn't the point i wrote a letter to meet with this executive to ask about his or her experiences in the music business so i could gather data and write the business plan well um what ended up happening is nothing happened in that regard and i moved on to a different business plan coincidentally that was based upon my grandfather's research that he did in the 1950s on ears being used as a positive means of identification. And that was a business plan that I could actually sink my teeth into, write and graduate school. So jump to February, 1989. And my mom calls me up one day and she says, uh, hey Doug, there's a letter here from A&M Records. Should I open it and read it to you? I said, no, that's okay. I'll, I'll check it out when I come home this weekend. She's like, are you sure? I said, yeah, it's just another one of those rejection letters and they probably, it's just from human resources. So I get home that weekend and I open the letter 
and it's not from human resources. It's from the executive assistant to the chairman of the board of A&M Records, Jerry Moss. Oh, wow. And he's, he's one of the greatest record industry entrepreneurs of all time. Him yeah. and, and David Geffen are, are right up there. Those, yeah. those guys were my idols. And the letter said, um, Mr. Pick, in regards to your request to meet Mr. Moss, he would like to meet you. So please call me and we'll set up a time to meet. So May 11th, 1989, I remember it was 4 p.m., and um, I walked onto the A&M Records lot, which happened to be Charlie Chaplin's old soundstage. Jerry's office was actually Charlie Chaplin's makeup room, which was really cool. That's and amazing. I met, uh, I met the coolest entrepreneur I've ever met, the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. And, um, and really the setup of the meeting was to um, interview him. And so I interviewed him for 20 minutes and at the end of the 20 minutes, he said, so what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm looking for a job in the music business. And he said, well, how would you like to work here? <laughs> Let <laughs> and, me think. Yeah. And I said, I'd love to. And that started a four month journey where Jerry would introduce me to various executives in the company. And ultimately a, a, a position was created for this rock and roll guy. So I'm a guy that likes Rage Against the Machine, Motley <laughs> Crue, Jane's Addiction, Metallica, you name it. Where was the position created? It was created in children's music. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and, and the thing about it was, it was it was actually quite apropos because someone from the USC Entrepreneur Program, I was immersed in a two-person division. It was myself and one other gentleman um, and shortly after this manager uh, hired me, he moved on to Disney Records. And so here's this Doug Pitt guy, 21 years old, and I am the division leader of an $8 million business for A&M Records. And so I got to learn a lot about what it was to be not an entrepreneur, but an intrapreneur. Yep. And I made mistakes, unfortunately, on Jerry and Herb's dime. <laughs> right. <laughs> And, and, and also use that opportunity. I'll give you one example, which is A&M Records. It has the most famous recording studio in the world. It's where We Are the World was, was recorded. It's now uh, known as Henson Studios. Um, but uh, all the famous bands would record there. We're talking Kiss, Motley Crue, U2, Bruce Springsteen. The list went on and on and on and on. And what I would do as a guy who wanted to meet people in the music business, I literally would sat, sit at the steps of the stairs leading into the studio, eating my lunch. And if Nikki Six or Bono or Bruce Springsteen would walk up, I would take that opportunity to introduce myself. And so that's how I started to network and meet people because I'm really fearless when it comes to meeting anyone. I love meeting people. I love expanding the network. And so uh, that's what I did. Leading on to my entrepreneurial path, um, ultimately, after working in children's music for two and a half years, I was turning 24. I had no kids, no home payment. Um, I had no obligations, and I had saved about $15,000. And um, I decided that I was going to launch and become the next business manager of, of a recording artist that was known as Prince Whipper Whip. 
And this guy, uh, he was part of the Zulu Kings, super talented gentleman. Um, but ultimately, what I learned in that time is that a lot of artist management is about really overseeing adults that may not have their priorities lined up with mine and how I wanted to charge forward. So I ended that stint. And then I came back to just different ideas. And I took time to just think, what do I want to do? What would be a passion for me? And that led me back to this world of earplugs. And a lot of people did a double take in this regard. Um, I was originally introduced to earplugs by my brother for sleep. And he's like, you got to try this. And I was like, earplugs, really? He's like, yeah, just put these in your ears and go to sleep. And I did it one night and I was like, I, I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm like, wow, this, this was like the best night's sleep I'd ever have. Yeah. So didn't really think of it, just started using earplugs. And um, what I noticed as I would buy the products at the local drugstore was in my mind, the product was, was always sold out. Now, what I would later learn as a guy who, who knew about retail is it could have just been an out of stock situation and the retailer didn't do a great job of stocking the item. But to my inexperienced eye, I saw it as this is a hot little segment. And so what I started to do was just research the heck out of this space. And before I knew it, I had created this brand called Heroes. And the unique thing about the spelling of heroes for me was um, I looked at the word, well, let me just put it another way. Um, when I created my brand, the competition at that time, they were all rather somewhat negative in how they positioned their brand. So one brand was called Quiet Please. Well, that doesn't sound like the <laughs> nicest thing to say. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so um, I thought, what what should my brand embody? And really what it what it needed to embody was a friendly protector. And I said, well, what's a friendly protector? That's a hero. And how is heroes, how is hero spelled? H E R O. Well, we're dealing with the ears and we're dealing with hearing. So what if I snuck an A between the E and the R and now all of a sudden I've got here, O, and then I'll put an S on it and it's heroes. And I thought of that in July of 1992. It turns out that the previous owner of the Heroes trademark had abandoned that mark June of 1992. So again, another serendipitous wow. opportunity. I was able to file for that trademark, got it. And then I um, established a relationship with a local manufacturer of earplugs. And what I can share with you is in the world of foam earplugs, um, there aren't very many that do it, nor there aren't very many that do it well. And I happened to meet a manufacturer that was local to me also. Um, a gentleman named Howard Light is really the king of earplugs. Anybody that wants to research earplugs, he is the greatest earplug inventor of all time and um, has sold billions of earplugs. And he made a very unique product. And my whole thing is um, I'm all about being delightfully disruptive, doing things different, being different, being innovative. And so Howard made a product that just looked different and it was great quality. And it had attributes about it that I could build a story around. Because for me, 
it's about selling the sizzle, not the steak, mm -hmm. but making sure you have a damn good steak. Yeah. Because once you get that trial, if you can, if you can get the consumer to purchase your product, you got to make sure that it works and it delivers on the vision of what your package uh, calls for. So long story short, 1992, I started with $15,000 in savings and I was in my bedroom of my studio city's apartment. I was making phone calls in the morning, selling to just about everybody that I could. And by 2008, we're going to jump ahead 16 years. I had, um, grown heroes and a sister brand called sleep pretty in pink to become the number one and number two best sellers in the country with relationships at Walmart, Walgreens, Rite Aid, CVS, Kroger, Guitar Center. We sold them on the Lollapalooza tour. We sold them on Limp Biscuits tour and life was just awesome. <laughs> God, dude, what a story. Yeah, that is definitely a hero's journey. All right, and there's and there's so many nuggets in there that you probably just you you probably take for granted because you've lived it, right? But there's so many nuggets of wisdom in there. The first uh being the fact that going back to to Moss, Jerry Moss, right? Yeah. Okay, going back to Jerry Moss, which I think is very cool. You you hear this all the time, but few people actually realize the power of this. If you ask somebody for a favor, you'll never hear from them. You ask them for advice, okay. People love to give advice. And then I've also found that, look, you, you show full transparency. One of the reasons the Jason Wright Show exists is because if I just found out about, if I just found out from my buddy James Quandall, there's this guy named Doug Pick, and, oh, I would love to talk to him. First of all, this would be kind of weird. Hey, Doug, Jason Wright, I just really like to talk to you and learn from you. And it'd be kind of, you'd probably talk to me because you're a nice guy, but, you know, you start a podcast and you go, hey, I would love to interview. Have you come on and tell your story? And then it opens up all this uh, these opportunities for me to feed my mind, to feed my brain. And, I, and that's one of the best benefits of this show for me. You did something very, very impressive in that you said, you said, I want to interview you. And you know what's crazy about that, Doug? Tim Ferriss has done the same thing for his books. As a matter of fact, you know, Tools of Titans, which has made him no telling how much money. That's mm. what he did. He, and, and he would even make it so easy for people. He would be like... Look, here are three questions or 20 questions, whatever. Just please answer these questions. Would you do it? And he's Tim Ferriss. And some would say, yeah, I know Tim, but enough did to where he's got a New York Times bestselling book out of the deal. So many people, and what you proved with that Jerry Moss story, so many people think that it, you have to follow the path, not the path of least resistance, but just the path most traveled. They forget that there's all these end arounds. It's what James Altucher calls skipping the line. You don't, and, and now more. Than, and the cool thing is about your story, you were doing this and executing on this back before there were all these end arounds and self-publishing if you want to be an author. You know, the, the, the social media to get your brand out there. So my question for you is, where does that come from? Where did you first either learn that? Is it just something that all one day you just innately decided, well, hell, I don't have to wait to, for an invitation. Where does that come from in your DNA? It's a great question. Um, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I say that because I think it is one of those innate qualities. Mm -hmm. um, I just have that sense of adventure, of fearlessness that Jason, you're a regular human being as I'm a regular human being. Yep. And um, I'm into e expansion of opportunities. And I feel that 
perhaps there is value that I can offer and perhaps others can offer to me. And I've just never had any fear of pushing the boundaries and doing things that people haven't done. In regards to those particular high level people, the, um, I've, I've also learned that if I want to get something done, generally I start at the top. So I don't start with um, a product manager somewhere. I'll go right to the top of an organization. And that kind of feeds into the story of Jeff Bezos and Amazon and how I was able to secure the first Amazon Basics earplug line by sending one email to a single person, jeff at amazon.com. <laughs> and I introduced myself and the story of how we could offer value to his organization. And within 24 hours, his executives were reaching out. And within a year, we had constructed a new product line for Amazon. So um, I, I, I couldn't tell you where the origin is. I, well, maybe actually, let me say one thing, which is my uncle taught me when it comes to fears, don't run away from them, run at them. I like that. I love that. That's something I have really had to try to embrace. You know, go ahead when the dragon is breathing down your neck. And as a matter of fact, I was just talking to someone on the podcast recently. We, we talked about that. You know, a lot of people, they will try to avoid the dragon by numbing it with drugs, alcohol, whatever. But the dragon is still going to be there. The best way to get rid of the dragon is just to go stare the thing down and try to slay it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way to do it. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, I can think of so many instances in my life. My friends know this about me. My family knows this about me. I mean, I can tell you so many instances where I've done things that, um, would, would probably blow people's mind, like going to the Academy Awards, going up to David Geffen at a restaurant. Um, I could tell you story after story of various people that, I just want to meet. And I think maybe some of what people take away is, and I think for your listeners, what would be cool to realize is if you're really excited to meet somebody that comes through, mm -hmm. whether it is a girl that you want to meet an executive, uh, you want to do business with a, with a company. Part of my success is attributable to I'm super passionate and I'm authentic about what I want and what I want to accomplish together with people. And, yeah. and I think a lot of times that comes through. So I could not agree more. You know, Andy Stanley, whose dad is Charles Stanley, both of them now, you know, Andy, the, the junior Stanley, they both have these massive ministries, right, mm. out in Atlanta. Charles Stanley, legendary. And Andy said it was so funny when he was growing up, people that would meet his dad for the first time would inevitably start talking about themselves. They would start trying, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Pastor Stanley, and I want to tell you all about me. I want Dr. Stanley. He said, it was really strange. He said, but the, the people that really, you could tell, appreciated meeting my dad were the ones that were like, they understood, I'm in front of Charles Stanley. I'm gonna, <laughs> I want to ask him questions about himself. I'm, I'm interested in meeting him. And you're mm -hmm. so right. I've noticed that throughout the course of my life, if you just can truly gather this attitude of, I'm no better than anybody else. I'm just as good as anybody. And we're, at the end of the day, we are. We're all just humans. Mm -hmm. We all have fears. Mm -hmm. We all have insecurities. Money does not make insecurities go away. It can just make you hide it a little better, right? Mm -hmm. And power the same way. And that's one of the things that I have tried to get through to my daughters and why I love your story so much. Because, okay, look. 
you're talking about making it in the in the music industry. How many of those guys that you saw, they didn't they didn't get on the stage. They didn't get to selling out arenas by following some stupid formula. Now, granted, yeah, we do have the Simon Cowell, and there are there is a formulaic you know manufacturing you know industry now for for music. But for the most part, those guys, like you listen to the story of Metallica, and and those guys, they were just willing to just give it all, you know, and just go all in. And they would sneak around and find these ways. One of my favorite stories, if you if you have you ever read um, Dave Grohl's biography that just came yeah, out, I've heard great things about it. That's on my list. You will love it. I mean, being a mm-hmm. fellow, not only music lover but industry lover, and just finding the backstories. Dave Grohl, in my opinion, might be one of the most interesting and coolest rock stars alive today. The dude is just a legend. Here's something that I did not know until a few years ago. Did you know that the Foo Fighters debut album, he played every instrument on those tracks and, and just and mixed, the, mixed it, produced it, and sent, sent it out? Is that not amazing? Yeah, it was. Um, I listened to a podcast with him on it and he described his process which was he was just kind of bummed yep. at the time and he just needed to get the music out he didn't have any ideas or expectations of where it might lead he just knew he had this in him and he needed he needed to get it on uh the recording and that that's the beginning of it you know i i think a lot of times you know i look at again thinking of stephen perkins and uh, my friend Dave Navarro, both guys, so Stephen and Dave, they were in our high school marching band together. That's where they met. Really? And then they, they formed a band, and, and I was the photographer of this band called Disaster, which played the Hollywood local scene with Stephen and Dave. But the most remarkable thing that I think in some regards, and, and it goes to the subject of luck in, in, in many ways, which is Jane's Addiction was Steven and Dave's first band out of high school. Really? And look at, look at the lineage. Yeah. We're talking 40, that was 19, 1985. Steven was 17 years old when he joined Jane's Addiction. We're, we're coming up on what, 40 years? Wow. That, and you know, yeah. what, you know what I don't know? I should know, and I bet you know, I don't know who Jane was. I don't know the, I don't know the story behind Jane. Is there a Jane? Yeah, there was a Jane. Okay. There was a Jane that lived with Perry um, and that's how, that's how the name came to, I think, I think she had an addiction. <laughs> really? I think so. Yeah. That's so freaking cool. Let me ask you this too. Cause I made, <clears throat> okay. So one of the best decisions and I won't say worst decision, but it was all, it turned out good. But the decision I made to become an entrepreneur was to just set out to look at businesses to buy, man. I mean, I wanted to escape from corporate America and do my own thing moved back here to East Texas and kind of put my flag in the ground. And I really, I used to tell people, I didn't care if it was a hot dog stand or a broom factory. I just wanted to run and build something on my own. The thing though that I didn't do was take into consideration what industry, I'm not excited about brooms or hot dogs. I love a good hot dog, but I'm not excited enough to make it my vocation, nor do I like sweeping. And nor did I really care that much about real estate. I love what real estate provides. I love a roof over my head and I like cool buildings, but, is that how I want to make my living? I don't know, but that's what I did. I ended up buying a real estate brokerage and I got into real estate. So there was really no passion tied to that business and anything that I was really interested in. And as a result, it was, there was a lot of, 
I, it, I think it caused me to miss a lot of the excitement of owning my own business, developing. My, I had some of the most amazing agents that are still in this market today, and they are all, they're crushing it. They own their own businesses. I'm so proud of the being the first broker to a lot of these just rock stars here in our local market. So I did enjoy developing them, which turns out that turn, that's what I'm really excited about is developing people and watching them succeed and build them up and helping other entrepreneurs. How much do you think getting through and, and feel free to talk about some of those war stories of you're trying to build heroes and it's, it, it's at least while you're not playing bass anymore and you're not in a band and you're not, f- f- you know, that 13 year old photographer getting to show up to those early shows in Motley Crue. But like we talked about earlier, you're at least in the on the peripheral of something that is involved in the music business. I mean, Limp Biscuits, you know, mm-hmm. if Fred Durst is wearing freaking Heroes earplugs, that's kick ass. It's an awesome story. <laughs> you know, to go to Lollapalooza, you know, what was it? That was it the one they just made the Netflix special about ninety six, I guess, wherever they just destroy everything. It's just like the Lollapalooza gone bad. And so at least you're involved in the music business. Tell that would be entrepreneur. How much, if at all, it helped you to at least be tied to something you were passionate about to help draw you through those inevitable manufacturing issues, payroll issues, growth issues that come with being an entrepreneur. I mean, was it of of great benefit to you? Well, I think it, for me as an entrepreneur, um, it was all about the vision and when I started the original concept behind what I was going to do with heroes and the first business plan I wrote about, uh, the brand was that I was going to pioneer the music industry for hearing protection. I saw when I went to a lot of shows because with A&M, we would go to concerts every week. There was always bands to check out. So I'd be sitting in the audience and I noticed that the, uh, musicians would have hearing protection, but the audience didn't. And I'm thinking, okay, there's four musicians on stage and there's 2000 people in the audience. That's opportunity. <laughs> but I, but I didn't know, I didn't know, uh, what the opportunity ultimately, ultimately would come out to be. I will share one kind of funny story that was my, was my test. And I was thinking about it the other day I have hanging in my office, which I'll have to show you another time is I I have a dollar bill. And this dollar bill was the very first dollar that I made selling earplugs. I went to a club on Sunset Boulevard, which is called Coconut Teaser. It doesn't exist anymore. But the club was so freaking loud. I I brought with me a, 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 a sound level meter to measure the decibels. It was 125 decibels, which based on uh, standards for what your, your hearing can take, your ears can probably take 100, 125 dBs for about two minutes before hearing loss can occur. And my, my brain was like exploding being in here. But my test was if I could try and sell one pair of earplugs for a dollar at Coconut Teaser, well, then I had something. <laughs> wow. And, and I actually did. I remember I, 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 I met some stranger. And I said, Hey, would you like to buy some earplugs? And, and it was a woman. She said, yeah. So that dollar I still have. And that just kind of propelled me forward. But, but again, 
your question goes to the passion. The vision that I had was so vast because I saw this product as solving so many problems that would never go away when it comes to hearing protection. Okay, so how many tens of millions of people go to concerts? And I will say that I did pioneer the music industry with hearing protection by selling them through retailers. They, they don't really exist anymore, like Tower Records. Mm -hmm. uh, you may remember Sam Goody, Musicland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I pioneered selling earplugs in those locations, which was, it, it kind of kept me afloat and kept me going um, and growing the business incrementally while I worked on the Walgreens, the Walmarts, Rite Aid, CVS, and all those because, um, you know, this is also a story of passion as well as persistence because just because I'm saying that we landed those big chains, don't for one second think that it wasn't extremely difficult to get. And, and I'll just spell out the timeline. Walgreens took four years and seven trips to Deerfield, Illinois. The next big pin to drop was Walmart. That was eight years. The next one was Target, nine years. Rite Aid came in year 12, CVS 15. Wow. <laughs> and this wasn't, this was annual trips I would make out to the corporate offices to present our opportunity for innovation and doing things different. And, and it just takes time. So um, nothing's easy, nothing, nothing happens overnight. And, and one needs their passion, their drive, their conviction to be able to weather those storms to get through to those pots of gold. And, and the other thing I would say, Jason, is that I was never, I was never driven when I met with any of these retailers for, oh, what's the projection of what we could do if we landed Walmart and so on and so forth. That was never it. It was about providing their customer with the best damn product on the market. And when I met with a buyer, he or she knew that I was dead serious, that our product and our brand was the best and it had a lot of value to offer. So that's a little bit on that. You know who else shares that value is, uh, or that that mindset is Elon Musk. If you do, if you listen to any of his um, interviews or read anything about him when it comes to like building SpaceX and back whenever he was first building Tesla, he's very product focused. He believes if you just go all in and build the absolute best product possible, mm -hmm. the market will eventually reward you. And mm -hmm. so, and, and you know, you talking about those days where you were making the trips to, to Illinois, to Bentonville, Arkansas, and, and all, you know, trying, dude. So during my Home Depot days in, in Atlanta at, at their headquarters, I remember going downstairs and looking at the, what would be the main entrance where the vendors all sat and waited. And to the listener out there, which if you've never lived this life, then you really can't imagine what it's like being a want to be vendor for one of these major retailers. I mean, Doug, you don't get exactly like, oh, good, it's Doug Pick. Oh, we're so <laughs> glad to see you. I mean, am I right on that? That I mean, it's oh, yeah. it's not exactly a warm welcome from these people, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, no, they're, they're, they're all terrific people. I, I would say I have the greatest levels of respect for anyone in the executive ranks of retail, particularly the category managers, mm -hmm. because these are people that are making decisions for, for their organization. And, and just, 
I, I've never actually had a conversation with, with them about what pulls and ties are going on in their day. Because let's just take Walmart, for example, example, over 4,000 stores. And at any one point in time, a store manager could ping that category manager and say, hey, I've got a question about this product. Uh, consumer asked me about that, this. Then there is their bosses. All the executive management is, is sending down requests in their categories. Then there are the vendors that they have to manage. Then there are individual consumers. So how do these people get it done? I don't know. But my job, as I saw it was, and I would tell every category manager I met, is I would say, look, I understand that this category represents a minuscule amount of your business. And I'm here to serve you. I know I don't work for you, but really I do work for you. And my job as I see it is to help you get as educated and informed on this category as fast as possible to make the right decisions, whether or not you choose us or not, it's up to you, but I can share with you my 24 years of experience and any questions you might have, I'm here to help and serve. And, and I always back that up. So, you know, that it was just a tremendous honor to, to be able to serve those individuals and and they would change over quite frequently but it was always the same i'm here to serve and and make and make your day just a little bit easier yeah that's one of the things that and that's why i brought that up because a lot of people don't realize that what's on the line if you pick a bad product i mean because those those product merchants they're they're spending millions and millions of stockholders money you know, hoping to, to make the right, the right pick, you know, well, and you're no, no pun intended, you know? Um, so it's, it's one of those things that you, that people take for granted. Another thing too, another nugget that was hidden in your storytelling is this idea. A lot of people think that entrepreneurs are just big risk takers, just take the dice, slam them up against the wall. So what I heard Going, going all the way back to USC in your entrepreneurial program forward going and going forward is you're a guy that when you, like you might have an idea, you may uh -huh. go to Walgreens and notice they're always out of stock. And so that must be a hot product. You may notice that. And I think that too is a gift. Your reticular activating system is looking for opportunity at all times and bringing it to the fore. So you've got something there, but also what I kept hearing you say is you would research. Then I would research. You asked for the Jerry Moss interview. You would you would go and get data. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people take for granted. When they think they've got this great idea, they'll go, wait a minute, I've got a great idea. So give me the money or let's just sell the house. Let's go all in. But it sounds mm -hmm. to me like you, you feel that uh, or you basically tell the story or, or kind of dispel that myth, which a lot of people think that, Entrepreneurs, again, are these big, bold risk takers, but a lot of them, I just heard somebody say this uh, not too long ago, maybe it was on the podcast, and so if, if whoever said this to me, I'm sorry, I can't remember, but they said, you know, entrepreneurs aren't exactly big risk takers, they're calculated risk takers, right? And so talk about how important it is when you have, as an entrepreneur, what you think is a great idea to start researching it before you just start calling everybody and say, hey, I've got this eureka moment. By the way, I think it was me that said calculated risk to you. Was it you? <laughs> well, there you go, Doug. At least you know I'm listening. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, um, it goes back to the days of the entrepreneur program because what was that business plan? 
it was a big viability study. Again, the, the purpose of the plan wasn't to say, yes, take your life savings and invest it. It was look at the opportunity to evaluate, does this make sense? At the end of the day, does it make sense? What's it going to take to fund? Can you get that funding to do it? What, you know, all the different variables and, and, and every opportunity that I had, um, I've always looked at the pros and cons and, and I would also share with your listeners, there, there's no magic formula to it. All you need is simple arithmetic to understand that you've got your costs and you've got your revenues and revenues. Uh, if, if you are in the negative on your profit, it's probably not a great idea. And, and my process is the same today as it was 30 years ago. It's just evaluating the opportunity, the market, the competition, what are the costs to get into the market? And is this something that's sustainable? All right. So I've got a question for you because one of the hardest things for me to get my mind around a lot of times, and I remember, and I think we talked about this too, um, was when I was again, going back to the home Depot days, it, it can be one of the best and worst days of a vendor's life. Whenever home Depot says, yes, we'll place an order because now you're mm -hmm. talking about hundreds of stores, you know, just mm -hmm. thou, I mean, just overnight, you know, bare paint. I think we, we talked about that. Bare paint exists because of home Depot and it's now basically owned by home Depot. Mm -hmm. So whenever you get that order, when Walgreens says, when CVS, Rite Aid says, was it, and which one was the first really big box retailer that made you go say to yourself, Oh God, which one was it? The, Oh God, that I landed them or the, yeah, Oh the, God, that, that this you, is going to be a big order. That you, that you, either or that you were like, this is a, your first life changing order. My, my first life changing partner was Walgreens. Okay. And, and, and I, I think it might be informative to just tell you a little bit about that yeah, story. That, that's what, that's what I wanted to get to exactly yeah. how that went down. Yeah. Because there, I think there, there are some things in there that, that people will find, um, informative. So, um, when I started my business, my dad said to me one day, he goes, Hey, have you sent out samples to Walgreens? And I'm like, what's Walgreens? I didn't even know what Walgreens was. Again, we're going back to 1992. It's back when Eckerd's was still around, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. There's a good, good story around Eckerd's as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we landed them. Um, and, and I, so I didn't know, anything about Walgreens, he said, Doug, they're one of the biggest retailers in the country. You definitely should be selling to them. And oh, by the way, my cousin is the general counsel to Walgreens. And I was like, oh, so we've got family in the upper ranks of Walgreens. All right, I'm <laughs> in. And at that time they had about 15, 1600 stores. Um, I got some samples sent to my dad's cousin. And that facilitated uh, a meeting with a buyer named Mike. And um, I flew out to Deerfield, had my first meeting, and, and my presentation was you know, a notebook that I had showing things that were on the horizon. There was nothing that we had really going on other than um, one uh, a sporting goods chain called Sportmart that you may remember from some time ago. And long, long story short is at the end of the meeting, Mike says, well, Doug, uh, I'm really impressed with what you've done here. And I'm going to make the recommendation to our committee to add your products. 
And I'm like, great. So I, I flew home and I told my family, uh, Heroes is gonna be recommended to be added to Walgreens. And everybody was so happy. Mike said, call me in three weeks and um, I'll let you know the answer. So I called in three weeks and um, his secretary said, um, Mike's currently not available. Could you call back tomorrow? So I did that. Then I called back the next day. He's not available. Could you call back in two days? Um, I called in two days and this would go on for about three weeks. And ultimately throughout, through this process, um, I would just follow up and then Mike got on the phone and he said, Doug, I'm sorry to tell you, I made the recommendation, but uh, we're going to pass right now on the hero's opportunity. Uh, if you would, please call me in three months and we'll set up another time for you to come in and update me on your brand and how you're doing with building distribution. Well, Jason, this went on for three and a half years and seven trips to Walgreens. <laughs> wow. wow. And, and every time I went, the narrative was the same. Doug, what you're doing is great. We love the progress that you've made with your brand. I'm going to make the recommendation to add you to our stores. Meanwhile, they're, they're growing in stores. Um, and it was always the, the end result was, sorry, we're going to pass. One day, about three and a half years in, I get a call from Mike. And he says, uh, Doug, I'm sorry to tell you that I'm no longer the category manager. The new category manager is a guy named Charles Walgreen IV. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I get off the phone and um, I called my rep and um, I tell her, hey, we, we no longer have Mike as a buyer. Charles Walgreen is the buyer. And she's like, oh, wow, he's a new buyer. Not sure how that's going to work out. Um, but one of the things that I've learned, Jason, is I never prejudge any new person for how they are or are not going to be. I let the experience dictate what happens. And I just go in with a positive attitude and, and optimistic for the opportunity to do business together. So I meet Charles and he's just peppering me with questions. What's your national ad? What's your national ad spend? I'm like, um, Charles, we don't have an ad spend. <laughs> we, we can't afford uh, any ads. He asked for terms and all these different things. And in about 15, 20 minutes into the call with Charles, he says, Doug, <clears throat> tell you what I'm going to do. You're going to give me $2,500. You're going to write us a check for $2,500. And you're going to ship 50 units of the one item you think we should carry to 20 of our stores. And if that item performs, we're going to put you in the chain. Wow. And I was like, all right, let's go. So as it turns out, um, those items, this one item perform performed well, and we rolled out to all 1700 stores. And that was really the beginning of our 26 year relationship with Walgreens, um, where we sold hundreds of millions <clears throat> of earplugs through the chain and uh, the consumer that goes to those stores developed relationships with our heroes and sleep pretty and pink brands. God. Now, so when you get that, when, when Charles finally says, okay, we're going to, we're going to add you to the chain. Yeah. How did you have to add staff? Did you have to 
change your own uh, manufacturing arrangements. I mean, there, there's 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 a lot of dominoes that have to be lined up to to service an account like that. I mean, how did you handle the change in in operations and logistics whenever? And that's kind of what I wanted to get to. Is like, yeah, there's more to it. A lot of people, lot of people again, if you've never been there, I've never been in a, in a deal like that where all of a sudden I'm manufacturing a product and somebody says, oh. You do, you know, a hundred thousand units today. Well, guess what? You just went to a million by next Monday. There's a lot of freaking changes in your life and your business that have to be made. So, how did you gear up for that? What What was your mindset in preparing to be able to service the Walgreens account? Um, another great question. <clears throat> Believe it or not, not much. And and the reason why was because it was one item across these stores and my product had a lot of profit in it further is what i pioneered was the outsource model okay so my business um we peaked at about seven million in top line sales um and i operated the entire business from either a guest room or a guest house and i had one employee and i outsourced everything else now, how did you come? Okay, so so this is what I I'm not good at this, Doug. That you have, <laughs> you've tapped in on one of my biggest. I'm serious, and it's something that I just I admire the hell out of. How did you How did you know to do that? And how did you trust the people to handle and represent your like? And where did you start? Did you, you know, where does this outsourcing process start? I mean, kind of mm -hmm. put some of those pieces together because I'm I'm truly fascinated, man. Because, like. To me, that's the dream scenario. That's what I want. I want to have a cabin in Colorado, a cool product, you know. And, you know, and being able to find those partners that you can trust, how did, how did that come about? Where did you, where did you have the instinct to, to execute on that model? My whole thing is I didn't want employees. I, I like simplicity and, um, I, you know, how I do everything. I just start asking questions. <laughs> Smart. And so, so I had a packaging vendor, we had a corrugated box supplier. And I asked those sales reps, hey, I'm looking to do this. Do you know of an assembly house that also has logic logistics associated with it? Because, Jason, I was um, filling packages utilizing high school kids out of my garage wow. for about four years until I outgrew that space. Everything happened in stages with my business. So um, in 1997, we um we went from assembling and shipping out of my mother's garage to developing a partnership with an organization called new horizons and the cool thing about new horizons is that they utilize the services of mentally and physically handicapped adults to do assembly work oh, cool so and by the time my business had just grown and grown um by 2009 we were supplying 200 full-time jobs to the mentally and physically handicapped. And these people, this population loved putting these pieces of foam in the package. Mm -hmm. They did it well. The other great thing about my product, you know, if, if you look at the characteristics of why earplugs are so wonderful as a business, they have an indefinite shelf life. It's not like milk. We can assemble, we, I'm not in the business now, but we could assemble 10 million packages if we wanted at one time and, and ship them over the period of 50 years. And it's not going to matter. Yeah. They're going to be just as good today 
as they will be in 50 years. Yeah. They were, they're lightweight, they're consumable, they're high profit and everything about it just worked for my little niche business. God, dude, that's the dream. It, it is one of those dream businesses, like the coffee collar from you know, the, the movie Made of Honor <laughs> yeah. with Patrick Dempsey, mm -hmm. man, the coffee mm -hmm. collar. Yeah, it's <laughs> like everybody wants to come up with the next kitty litter or something like that. And I think that's one of the things that's so cool. But it was not. But but again, what you describe and what I hope this audience understands is that it wasn't just pure dumb luck. It was keeping your eyes open. It was looking for opportunities. So you, you said something there earlier, rather, that is is an, you're echoing something that one of the most amazing entrepreneurs I happen to stumble upon in, in recent years said to me. So I'll just give you like a little bit of a history. So a buddy of mine and I that we were in business together, we had a, uh, we were partners in a large, um, heavy industrial construction company, which I knew nothing about until my partner got me into it. And, um, we weren't, we wanted to make some acquisitions. And so there was this West Texas company that d did what we wanted to do on a much greater scale. And so we go out and we meet with this owner, man, and we, we walk in and first of all, we're looking at this guy's operation, which was the most, it looked like McKinsey had come out and set up this company. It was so pristine, so perfect. Mm -hmm. Everything was just amazing. The owner walks in, I won't, I won't say his name, but he, he, he walks in with a cane, with a uniform shirt on with his name on it, 74 <laughs> years old, ball cap. And this guy, I think he was doing about $25 million a year in EBITDA by himself, a sole owner, no family. He had had the business for like 25 years. And we're just, my partner and I are just amazed at how, well run this is he he opened up now this isn't like a, a uh, industrial site right he yeah. takes us into this weight room that looks like some it looks like equinox in this <laughs> this industrial space and he goes i never set foot in there he said but the good people in washington said that i would get a 10 percent break on my taxes if i put in a health and wellness center so i went and bought these this he said, I, there, I found a gym that had gone out of business. I paid 10 cents on the dollar for everything you see in there. And so there, now I have a weight room and I'm saving on my taxes. Wow. And, and he said, what I have done, he said, the secret to my success is I've looked for opportunities. He said, mm -hmm. I started looking at the great industrialists that came before us, the Carnegie's, the Morgan's, the Rockefeller's. He said, the thing that, what, that they were geniuses at was seeking and exploiting opportunities. And he said, that's all I've tried to do. That's how I built my business. I just look for opportunities. And it seems to me that that's something that you have a gift of. And what has, what has proven successful for you is you, you look, you're constantly looking for opportunities. And that's what I, I would try to anyone out there that wants to be an entrepreneur. Don't try to, they, they envy the Mark Zuckerberg's and the, the, the Musk that I mentioned earlier, or Jeff Bezos. Those were people like Jeff Bezos saw an opportunity in selling products online and he's, but he started with books just to kind of mm -hmm. work out the kinks, but he knew there was an opportunity. It was an opportunity he was chasing. You saw that there was, there were out of stocks at these stores uh, in earplugs. You saw audiences of 2000 that didn't have earplugs while four people on stage had them. You saw opportunity. <clears throat> and I think that's the genius of a Steve Jobs or someone like that, that that's why, you know, Steve Jobs famously said, we tell people what they want before they know they want it or they need before they need it. And that that's how somebody, that's how you exploit a market. A market is there. There are markets all over. It's the, uh, the good entrepreneur 
that is the one that actually is able to see the market that's right under everybody's nose. It's kind of like Jerry Seinfeld in his comedy. He sees every all the funny things that all of us are doing. He just notices it and brings it to our attention and is now a billionaire comic as a result of it. And so that's what I hear that is so cool about your story, man. And then the questions. I want to I want to tell you, you said you ask questions. You always mm-hmm. start asking questions whenever I ask yeah. you this question about how did you get to that point. It's been one of my, my Achilles heels for so long, or my Achilles for so long, in that I was not good at asking questions. And I, I've the, the people that listen to this podcast regularly, they've heard me say this all the time, I'll get the question, was going to business school and getting your MBA, was it worth it? Honestly, I don't know. Maybe. But if I could just tell you the greatest takeaway from business school was I learned to not only to ask questions, but to ask better questions. There is so much value in questioning, questioning, learning, learning, asking. And it sounds to me like that is something that you were able to figure out either naturally or whatever, just being naturally curious or realizing, you know, there is no, there's no pride attached to being able to say, Hey, I don't know, but I'll learn. I'll ask. And Mm -hmm. I just, I just find all, I I find the whole story, man, uh, of your, of your journey. It's just, it's fascinating, dude. It's, it's awesome. It is. It's an entrepreneurial storybook. You know, it's, it's really cool, man. Yeah. Well, uh, two points in that regard, you asked earlier on, where did I get this gumption Mm -hmm. to, um, be fearless in a sense. And, my mom often reminds me that my favorite book growing up was Curious George. <laughs> yes. And, and that's, that's really asking questions. There's a lot of power in the question. And what we know is that we learn by listening, not talking. Absolutely. So uh, a good question leads to a great answer. And as long as you're not talking, you're probably able to take it in. Yeah. So, um, that, that just kind of fueled the whole thing for me. And, and I would also say the question led to, you know, being able to reflect and ask questions led to um, one of my greatest successes. So Heroes was a great brand. And I mentioned before this, this brand Sleep Pretty in Pink. And, you know, I'll take you back to 2005. I had a meeting with our 3M rep. We were selling about 20 million pairs of 3M earplugs every year, and it was just growing and growing and growing. And my my sales rep for 3M said, hey, let's meet for lunch. I want to show you some new products that we're developing. And the new products were just the same earplugs I was buying in different colors. And he said, what do you think about these? He showed me a green, a black, a blue, and a pink. And I'm like, hmm, pink, that's interesting. He said, what, what, what's so interesting about that? And I said, well, you know, his name was Marty. I said, Marty, even though people send in emails to our company to ask questions, they don't know that I'm the guy that is responding to every single question that is there because I was the company. And time and time again, I received hundreds of emails from women that said, your hero's earplug saved my marriage because now I can sleep with my husband. Hmm. And the challenge for these women was that if they didn't fall asleep before Big John went to bed, their their ability to fall asleep might be in jeopardy because he would start snoring and he had no difficulty sleeping. She did. 
And, and so what, what my business evolved to evolved into was one coming out with the first pink earplug in retail. And if anyone goes shopping in any of the major retailers today, they will see a women directed earplug. So what we did with this brand sleep pretty in pink is after this meeting with Marty, I went home, I paid my graphic designer 300 bucks. We modified our existing hero package with a little different shape to the top of the card, came up with this brand sleep pretty in pink and, um, started marketing it in 2005 by 2008. It was one of the top sellers in the country. And we literally had the most successful, uh, marketed earplug, I think in the retail space. And it just, it went bonkers. There were lots of copycats, lots of press associated with it. And I, I was very fortunate. I was able to secure the registered trademark to the color pink in earplugs, which for any of those trademark attorneys out there, they know how difficult it is to secure a color in any one particular product. It's very, very difficult to do, but because our marketing was so ubiquitous and the brand was so popular, the trademark office awarded it to us. So that was, you know, it all starts with, huh, you know, the aha moment yep. of what, who is our, and, and, and it came back to who is our core shopper? The core shopper is a female because as you and I are, are speaking, um, and it's different today, it, it's, it's much different today, but at that time, the core shopper was a female and she had trouble sleeping. So we just focused on the sleep market and my business evolved from being in just the earplug business to being in the sleep business. That is amazing. Well, it's awesome whenever you're talking about how you, again, you solved another problem. You know, their women weren't sleeping, their husbands were snoring. And it, it, again, all these nuggets, dude, that you're laying out today. I mean, you, you're like throwing it down. I hope that the <laughs> listener, are, they're taking some notes. And, and this is my, Doug Pick is my gift to you, Jason Wright Show audience. Because the thing that you're also, you keep saying over and over, going all the way back to when we were talking about when you would meet with these product merchants, these buyers, is you're, 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 you come with the attitude, I'm try, I want to solve problems for you. I want my earplugs to add value to your life. And by the way, we mentioned Jeff Bezos earlier. Jeff Bezos said, if you want to be a billionaire, then you got to solve a billion people's problems. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's solving those little problems and the questions that, you, that get you, that, that the questions you ask to discover what people's problems are. If you listen to enough people, they'll, somewhere in there, you'll go, I can solve that. And then the thing I love about your story as well is the fact that I think one of the sexiest parts of your business is the unsexiness of it. And again, most problems that people spend their money on to solve every single day aren't that sexy. They're not, mm -hmm. they're just things, right? And so that's one of the things I love most about this whole story, man. Yeah. I mean, that is the whole thing, which is, you know, if we're talking about at the end of the day, let, let me just say this. So I was intrigued to go into the music business, but at the end of the day, it's just a business. I could listen to records and go to concerts and also be in a different business. And the thing about my business was that it was super profitable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which and, doesn't and, suck. That, and that's what's to me, that's what was sexy. Um, to, to know that there was margin to be able to do business with the large retailers and, and be in a space that, you know, I would say to your listeners, 
if if you have conviction and you have belief and you have the vision don't let anyone persuade you otherwise you see it through you drive hard I, I can tell you one of my best friends this is kind of it's a funny story when i look back on it but it kind of hurt when i when i went through it which was i was in the upstart of getting heroes going i'd wake up at six or seven in the morning i'd make the sales calls in order to prepare to assemble goods to ship during the afternoon and one of my buddies who worked at ups we were young kids at the time you know we were in our 20s he calls me up it was a friday and he says hey dude i'm thinking about going to the beach today and i was like oh cool have a great time he goes you don't want to go and i go no i'm i'm working on my business he goes what business i go my hero's earplug business and no joke these were his words he goes why don't you get a job <laughs> and i said i have a job i'm growing my company and i hung up with him he went to the beach and a few years later, after I landed Walgreens and my business was growing and things were really taking shape, I called him on a Friday <laughs> and I said, Hey dude, I'm thinking about going to the beach today. He's like, Oh no, I, I can't, I can't go. I'm like, why not? He goes, I got to work. I go, Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> I'm going to take some time off and enjoy the Friday, this Friday. So, you know, it, it's, it's about having that conviction and and being the lion not the sheep Amen. having that conviction to just drive 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 if if in fact you believe that you're on the right track well and i think that you and i have mentioned before in one of our conversations gary vaynerchuk who that's what he's constantly talking about is you've got to get to the point where you just don't care what people think and when you're mm -hmm. trying to do something out of the ordinary that is when you're trying to break away from the herd everybody's going to look at you and go what are you doing i mean and dude i face it all the time you know people are like mm -hmm. wait a minute you're, you're a podcast what do you what do you mean and and to the now when when people ask you so so what are you doing i go i'm i'm a consultant you know i'm not going to say i'm an author i'm a podcaster it just they don't get it until all of a sudden you look up one day and it's 5 years later and you're getting thousands of thousands of downloads and you're getting to talk to cool people and they're like Oh, you know, and so I would, t I think that's a great message to the listener. And so Dan Whitmer, who I mentioned earlier before we got on, one of the co-founders of Jump Rope Dudes. Yeah. He basically echoed what you're saying right now. He said, because I asked him for some, you know, advice to the would-be entrepreneur or creator. And he said, stop listening to everybody. And when he, it was a little bit different spin. One, yeah, the, the naysayer out there, first of all, anyone that would say get a job to a would-be entrepreneur, that is some of the worst advice ever, unless it's somebody that you know has just really failed over and over because, I mean, my God, let's face it, you know, one of my favorite quotes of all time is uh, one that I heard. I can't remember who originally said it. said, the two most addictive things in the world are cocaine and a paycheck every two weeks and the second one will kill you. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I mean, and so whenever people say get a job or they just want you to, and that's what I've tried to do with Rylan and Abby, my daughters is not to tell them mm -hmm. to go down this one lane, but Dan, what he said was, you know, just if you feel passionately and it's something you want to do, go forward and just, just go balls to the wall and chase the dream 
And also, don't listen to all the gurus trying to do what they're doing. No, do your thing. And, of mm-hmm. course, the, 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 the jump rope dudes uh, saying is do the thing. And yeah. they're, and you know, here they are, 1.2 million subscribers on YouTube. So what you're saying, I think, is incredibly sound advice. And if you've got that conviction, it, then all of a sudden those voices should become much smaller, right? I mean, it's, and, and let me ask you this. This is something, too, because going back to, <clears throat> I told you earlier, my business didn't have so much to do with a product or a service I wanted to offer. But I will say this, the vision of my life I wanted to live, the mm-hmm. vision of a lifestyle, uh, being able to map out my life outside of my vocation, that did, that is what drew me and what did sustain me and has sustained me to do, oh, like I've said to people all the time now, you know, I've spent over 20 years without having to have a real job. You know, Talk to people, and you did touch upon it, it, but I want you to kind of take that a little further so this audience understands if they are out there trying to figure out, okay, I, I like I listen to Gary Vaynerchuk, I see Tim Ferriss, I see all these guys, I want to be an entrepreneur. I mean, entrepreneur is the sexy thing these days. TikTok has, is covered with, you know, entrepreneur stories. How important and what steps do you still take to this day of taking the vision of your life that you want that vocation, that business to fuel. How important is that to you? And has it been in building your businesses? Again, great question. And how important is, is it? It's mission critical to have that vision. There is a, there's a belief that I have, which is if you don't tell the universe what you want, it doesn't know what to deliver to you. Whoa, that's, wait, that's money. Repeat that. That's that. That's good, Doug. Pick. I will remember that you told me that. Okay. Say that again. That's fantastic. So, if you don't tell the universe what you want, the universe doesn't know what to give to you or what mm. to deliver to you. I believe that the universe, what whatever it is, the higher spirit. I, I happen to believe in God. I believe in the higher spirit, um, and I also believe that this higher spirit wants me to live the life that I want. I just have to tell that spirit what I want and put it on paper. That's why the the exercise of writing down goals as opposed to saying, I want to do this, I want to do that, being specific. What I've done, Jason, for 30 years is I've done these things which are called treasure maps. I'm in the process of doing it right now. <laughs> and a treasure map is taking a poster board and putting what you want on it. I designed it for my wife. I designed it for all of the retailers that I wanted. On this board, I would put Eckerd's, Walmart, Walgreens, Rite Aid, CVS. And and when I got those accounts, I would photocopy the first payment and put it on that board. That's awesome, man. And and I did that with, you know, I love cars. I want to take trips. One one of the things for me when I started my business, and again, I, I come from very humble beginnings was there was this ad I saw in a magazine and it said, I want to be able to have sushi anytime, any place with anyone. And I put that on my board so I could one day afford that moment where on a Monday at noon, if I wanted to go for sushi, I, I went for it. And that was, it's just setting in motion what you want and letting yourself know and the universe know and all those around you what you're driving towards. So that's that's my thing. And, and I would also say 
for, for those out there that are worried about what people think, I would try and just think about four words, which are don't think, then think. And the value of don't think, then think is the don't think helps you to not think about what others might think about what you want to do. The then think is, how am I going to take action? Mm-hmm. I like that. I like, and you know what's funny is whenever you do execute on that, after a while, when you do it long enough, like right now, I mean, because you, and now granted, you've proven yourself. But after you do it for so long, eventually people are not surprised at the things that you're, the crazy things that you're doing, the, the unusual, mm-hmm. the, the contrarian things you're doing. In fact, they start to expect it. And what's really cool to me is when they, they not only start to value it, but they start asking you, how did you do that? What, why did you do that? You know, but, then, uh, it, but it's getting through those early stages. And because the crowd can be very loud. You know, I've got, I hate to tell on her, but you know, one, one of my, do- my oldest daughter, I constantly have to remind her, you know, Rylan, don't think about what others are thinking about what you're going to do. If just, just go forward. And so I think that's awesome. And, uh, maybe sometime in one of our, our calls, you got to show me one of your treasure maps. I think that's yeah, fantastic. I've, I've got them all. And, and, um, um, I, I would also add, I, I wanted to make a point on that. Um, oh gosh, hmm. I lost it. I well, I'll say this and look, I have, you know, I do, I'm a big believer in setting the goals, then developing the inputs that will get to the goals. You're creating the process. So I'm with you on that. And I can tell you where one of the greatest manifestations of training your brain to look for opportunities, which for those of you who you probably heard me say it before, we do have this thing in our brain called the reticular activating system. I think I mentioned earlier in this conversation, essentially what it is, is when you tell your brain, just exactly what Doug's talking about, when you tell your brain what you want, then what happens is our subconscious mind will start scanning and looking for those things while we're just going about our day. It's looking for pieces to put together. And, and it, the, the example that's always used in books on neuroscience is it's why whenever we're in a crowded room and you're like really in a conversation, but if all of a sudden someone across the room says, Doug or Doug pick, then immediately you will break off the conversation and it will get your attention because your reticular activating system that scanned the room realized, Oh, something is going on over there that must be associated with us because they just said either our name or our whole name or first name or something. And so this happened for me whenever I bought my first business. So do you remember the Carlton sheets, real estate tapes, the guy that he would teach you how to buy uh, real estate, yeah. with no money down. He was one of the yeah, commercial yeah, yeah. guys. Okay. So I had those tapes and this is back whenever I was still at home Depot and I'm just looking for a business to buy. Okay. I'm trying to escape from corporate America and I think I'm probably going to go into real estate. And what had happened was, but before that I'm listening to these tapes, trying to figure out how to you know put together a real estate portfolio as an investor. At the time I had the house I lived in and that was, it had no other property. And I start negotiating the purchase of this real estate business that I w- would eventually become my first company that I bought. And man, Doug, whenever I'm going through the ne- negotiations, I have no idea how I'm going to pay for this. If this guy agrees <laughs> to my terms, I'm like, I have no clue. I'm acting like I'm going to be able to execute on this, but I'm like, yeah. you, I came from pretty modest means. There was no family money, no nothing. And heck, I'd only been out of undergrad for six years. It wasn't like I had this huge, you know, pot of wealth built up. So I'm like, oh gosh. And then, so all of a sudden I'm like, we start to get to get close on the deal. And I'm like, how am I going to structure this thing? 
Well, I'm li- I'm going home from work one night, and I'm listening to this Carlton Sheets tape, and he starts talking about how you buy real estate with no money down. And one of his uh, stories that he gives is, well, if you've got a piece of property that you're trying to buy that the owner owns free and clear, then you can borrow against that property, mm. and then the owner can give you a, 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 a can owner finance a portion of it. And the great thing is, let's say that you've got a $200,000 piece of property that you're trying to buy. If you, you can go to the bank and borrow $100,000, give them the money down, and then they finance the difference. Now, that makes for a good infomercial. And the, when the mm-hmm. rubber meets the road, every bank is going to say, well, that's fine and dandy, but we're going to take first position. And the guy carrying the note is going to be second position. And most owners don't want to do that. But I'm sitting there. I remembered what happened was, and here's the reticular activating system in operation. Yeah. I'm listening to this tape about how to buy real estate. And all of a sudden, I remembered in one of my conversations with the guy that I was buying my company from, he had told me that the office building that I would be purchasing with the company, they only owed $56,000 on, but it was probably hmm. worth around four hundred grand. Wow. So I thought to myself, so all of a sudden I go, wait a minute. Okay, so there is some liquidity there to let some equity to leverage. Huh. I wonder. So I call up my banker and I say, I ask myself, hey, if I've got an asset a building I want to buy that's supposed to appraise for around 400 grand. Would you loan me $200,000 against it? And he said, well, yeah. And mm-hmm. I explained to him, he said, well, but there's no way that seller, I can't imagine the seller giving, you know, taking second position. He said, because we're going to have to have first position. Long story short, that's how I buy my first company. Mm-hmm. I take the equity out of that building. I pay off the 56,000. I owner finance the rest of the building and then give a little bit more of the 200000 as a down payment on the actual franchise I'm buying and put that on a five-year note. And so it was a 100% leveraged buyout. 28 years old, some kid with an undergrad from Stephen F. Austin State University <laughs> that had no idea what the hell he was doing. And it, was, it wasn't because I was smart. It was because I've always said that the reason why that worked was for exactly what you're talking about. I had this vision of the life I wanted to live. And here's the cool thing about that, Doug. Had nothing to do with the fact that I bought a real estate company and look at me, I'm a great entrepreneur. What it had to do with was this. The office building that I owned was less than a mile away from the church I was going to be attending when I moved to Tyler. It was it was eight-tenths of a mile from my house I was buying. My whole life, the office, the church, and the house was all within a one-mile radius, which was exactly what I wanted. I told you, I wanted to get off airplanes and and travel for Home Depot for business all the time. I wanted to be home with Ryland and Abby, owning my own shop, and 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 I had such a clear vision of this that it came into play, and that's why I bring that up because there's... When I go to speak to undergrads or I spoke to like a bunch of high school students here recently here in Tyler, I was like... You guys, if, if if just making money, if just making money is the thing, then you're you're gonna you're just gonna be frustrated for a lot a lot of years. Because I was, mm-hmm. I thought early on, just it's all about get the get the job that sounds cool, that pays well, that you get to fly first class, whatever. But never really thought about the vision of the life I wanted to live, mm-hmm. and the the terms of that life. And the cool thing about it, and I don't know if you've discovered this or not. Here's the cool thing. If you will take the time to truly figure out what matters to you in life, dude, it, it, you'll find out it probably doesn't take nearly as much money as you think. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and as as I get older and older, the simplicity of 
of what makes me happy on a daily basis, it just it gets trimmed down more and more and more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I just read something and I actually wrote an article about it that we go through these phases of life where there is the accumulation phase where we think we have to have the cool cars. We have to have all this crap. But then you reach the stage where, you know, kind of where you and I are, where all of a sudden you start shedding away. Mm-hmm. All this, and, and I compare it to, you know, like my book, The Stone Chisel that I wrote, which is where you're chiseling from the inside. You know, Michelangelo, whenever he chiseled a piece of rock, he before you could see the David, he had to chisel away all the stuff that wouldn't matter so that all that was left was what made the David beautiful. What made that, that's all. And so I think you, you come to a point in life where you start to realize we're just chiseling away and if you can get rid of the superfluous, then the cool thing is the things that might have been hidden beneath the stone that, did, that, that didn't even have any relevance at all because they were hidden by the stone or they were kind of mixed up. When they're brought to the fore, it might just be one eyeball, but for God's sake, it's an eyeball on this statue that is beautiful. And so, therefore, imagine if you couldn't see that, then all of these small little details become so much more prominent. And, um, and I'm with you, man. The older I get, the more I start to appreciate the the little things that have this amplified value because now I can look at them intently, and it's so cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and also, you know, going back to the sculpture analogy, which is you really don't get the beauty of whatever it is the art that you're working on until that last phase when yeah. you're polishing all of the all of the um, highlights, like you talk about the eye are 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 brought out and that's that's part of very much like an entrepreneur you start with an idea okay now what okay what's the next step then you got to pivot and then it's not until the end that's why like i always love i always have enjoyed um, making packaging because it's always started with my terrible childlike scribbles on a white piece of paper that i turn over to a designer and say this is what i want and then it's that massaging, it's that nurturing, it's that, oh, let's try this, let's pivot here, let's do that, to ultimately land at that finished product. And then it's just like, oh yeah, that's awesome. That's that's what I saw in my mind's eye. I love it. I love it. Doug, dude, okay, you can't be a stranger to the show. So this this is how this is how we're gonna make up for all those other conversations that we have offline is that the only thing I want in return is to have you back on the Jason Wright show to continue these conversations and and just and you know, my goal is for you to share your vast wisdom, your knowledge, and just just the your just your goodness. You're a good dude, man. And I'm so glad that uh that you're now in in my world and I can't wait to see what the future holds. So I appreciate you coming out, brother. Before we do in this, um, what is there anything else you would like to share with this audience? We've covered a lot of ground, man, but um, sometimes I, I leave some stuff on the table and I don't want to do that. You know, like you said, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. And it's been, like I said, it's been an honor to get to know you and have this opportunity to share some insights with your listeners. Um, you know, I, I would just say that go for it just do it all those all those cliche sayings just do it just go for it um apply 100 percent of your your passion your energy to whatever it is that you want to happen and see it see the finish line before you get there 
I love it, brother. I love it. Doug, it's been fun. I hope you have an incredible Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for you, man. I'm thankful for our friendship, and I appreciate you joining us on the show today. Likewise. Thank you. All right, brother. Sit tight. Well, that does it for this episode of The Jason Wright Show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Fourth Wall did the music. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonwrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out. Thank you.